Thank you, guys. Um, I misspoke earlier. The reception for the Perkins will be right here in the lobby. So on your way out, you will have no choice but to walk by them and thank them. <laughs> it's mandatory now. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's dive in this morning. I want to show you an image of an art piece by a Dutch artist named Piet Mondrian. He created this piece in 1941. It's a piece called New York City Number One. New York City Number One. Uh, it's not a painting. He actually just took a white canvas and a bunch of colored tape and lined up this white canvas with tape. It's supposed to be an abstract reflection on the New York sort of skyline, a New York high rise. And you can you can see at the very bottom, there's a cluster of tape. You all see that? There's more tape on the bottom than there is on the top. And Mondrian, art historians believe, intended for that cluster of tape at the bottom to reflect the floor of a New York City high rise. And he did this in 1941, and he passed away just three short years later in 1944. So this piece was actually a personal piece that hung in his study, in his home for the first three years after he created it. And then in 1944, after his passing, this piece was put on display at the MoMA in New York City, the Museum of Modern Art, which is one of the most famous museums in the world. And it stayed, it displayed at the MoMA in New York City until 1980, and then it was transferred to a prestigious uh, museum in Germany where it has been displayed since 1980. And then one year ago, an art historian happened to be flipping through an old copy of a magazine called Town and Country Magazine. It was an issue from 1944, right before Mondrian's passing. And in this magazine, there was a photograph, and I'll show you the photograph here. They, took a, they did a fashion shoot in Mondrian's study. And this art historian noticed in the background of the, the photograph that this famous piece, New York City Number 1, was hanging in Mondrian's study. But shockingly, he realized that it, had been hang, it was hung upside down. You see the cluster of tape on the top, not the bottom. And initially, his thought was Mondrian hung his own art piece upside down. And then it struck him, oh, wait, something way bigger has unfolded. It's not that Mondrian hung his piece upside down. We have put it on display upside down for almost three quarters of a century. And so they contacted this museum in Germany and they put it right side up. And this art historian in the last year has done a lot of research. He began reading through some of Mondrian's uh, personal writings and he realized, again, that for nearly three quarters of a century, we have misunderstood Mondrian's piece. That the cluster of tape was not intended to reflect the floor of a New York City high rise. It was actually intended to reflect the New York City sky. For 80 years, I guess, I don't know, I'm bad at math, close to 80 years, we thought New York City number one focused the attention on the floor. The floor is actually the sky, and the sky is actually the floor. Matthew chapter 20. We're in chapter 20, you guys. There's only 28. 
We're almost there. <laughs> Just say amen. You don't like Matthew, Steve? <laughs> the mother of Zebedee's sons, these are these two disciples, James and John. The mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons. And kneeling down, asked a favor of Jesus. What is it you want? He asked, Jesus asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. This is a tiger mom moment, right? It's essentially first century Jewish rabbinic way of saying like, let my sons get into Harvard. That's essentially what she's doing. I'll explain that more in a moment, the right and the left. But basically, when this mother of James and John asks Jesus, hey, can my son sit at your right or your left? These are positions of honor in kingdom culture. Again, I'll explain that more in a moment. But why does she ask Jesus for this? Jesus is not wealthy. He is prestigious. He doesn't really have power in any sort of official capacity. Why does she want this? Presumably, it is because of what Jesus has said just one verse earlier. Let me read it to you. Matthew 20, verse 19. One verse earlier, Jesus has just said, On the third day, I will be raised to life. Jesus has just made a very clear proclamation, declaration of resurrection. Jesus has just told these disciples of his, I I am going to be raised to life. Now that word raised, we think about Easter Sunday and resurrection, and it certainly does mean that. But in the first century world, to be elevated was a kingly endeavor. Kings and people of prominence and importance, they were the ones that were raised up high physically, right? Throne rooms were designed with the kings sitting above everybody else. So this mother wants her sons to receive positions of greatness when Jesus is raised. But her understanding of how to achieve this sort of greatness is very, very different than Jesus' path to greatness. Again, the sky is the floor, the floor is the sky in God's kingdom. She misses the fact that to be raised to life actually means first dying. She ignores death, and all she wants is the elevation, the raising, the greatness, and she wants it for her boys. We don't blame her, right? We want that for our kids. Those of you who have kids, all of us in some form or fashion want it for ourselves. But this mother has missed the most important part of what Jesus is saying here. So let's read the entire text in greater context. Matthew 20, 17 to 24. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way, he took the 12, his disciples, he took them aside, and he said to them, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he, I, will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down, asked a favor. What is it you want, he asked. Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom when you were raised. And then Jesus says this. You don't know what you are asking. 
Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Without hesitation, what do they say? We can. Give it to me. I'll drink it up. Give it to me. We can. They answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at the right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten, the other ten disciples out of the twelve, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Not because they were like, oh, these two brothers, they don't get it. we got to die. That's not why. They're indignant because they want those two seats. It's like, dude, how dare they? How dare they get their tiger mom to request the seats that I want, that I think I deserve? What is this whole thing about cup? Jesus says, can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? And they're like, yeah, we can, we can. And then he's like, you will. You will. Don't worry, you will drink the cup. What's he talking about? In the Jewish scriptures, uh, the, what we call the Old Testament, the reference to cup is very consistently in reference not to glory, but to grief. It is often um, a reference to God's wrath, his anger, the just punishment that he levies on those who do wrong. This is not easy, but it is biblical. Let me give you just two out of dozens and dozens of examples I could have given you. Psalm 78, in the hand of the Lord is a cup Full of foaming wine mixed with spices, he pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Isaiah 51, famous uh, passage about the cup. Awake, awake, rise up Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. On one hand, when Jesus says, can you drink the cup I am going to drink, this is the question he is asking. He's just told his followers, we are going to Jerusalem, and he's been so abundantly clear. I am going to be arrested and killed on a Roman cross. That's going to happen. And then I will be raised to life. But the whole raising to life thing doesn't happen until I am arrested and punished and crucified and killed. And why is that going to happen? We'll see more a little bit later in this passage. But Jesus will go on to say, that is going to happen because my life is a ransom for all. In other words, he is saying, my life is a payment that will be paid to bring freedom and liberation to all those who are enslaved to sin and to death. Now, James and John's mother ignore that part. She ignores that part. She's like, oh yeah, raised to life. That sounds awesome. When you are raised, can my sons sit with you? But Jesus makes it really clear. Before I am raised to life, I am going to die a brutal death, in essence, to drink the cup of God's wrath to pay the penalty for all human wrongdoing. And he's asking, can you drink that cup? Without knowing what they're saying, they say without hesitation, yeah, yeah, we can drink it. Now remember though, in God's kingdom, the sky is the floor and the floor is the sky. 
And so as Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath, that cup then becomes the cup of our salvation. And this is, there are hints of this throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Psalm 16, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. Psalm 116, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. But again, what James and John's mother, what she doesn't understand is that before Jesus experiences resurrection, he has to first die. Now, it's not that she doesn't conceptually understand it. That's just obvious. It's that she has a selective mind. She doesn't want death. She just wants resurrection. And this is true for all of us. 2 Corinthians 5, what does Paul say? If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Let's just be honest. We all want the new is here, but we don't, we don't want the pain and the struggle and the sacrifice of the old being gone. In reality, what we want this verse to say is like, the parts of the old that you still kind of like can linger, and then also the new is here. That's what we would like Paul to have said. That's not what he says. If you are in Jesus, you are a new, a brand new creation, completely different in your essence. And the old you is gone. It's not here. There aren't parts of it, bits and pieces that you can choose to sprinkle into the new. Something is either old or it is new. You do not meld the two. We want the new is here without the old is gone. Which brings us back to this strange thing about sitting at the right and the left. Let's just read it again, verses 20 to 23. The mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked him for a favor. What is it you want, Jesus asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and at your left in your kingdom. Then he says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? And they say, we can. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom uh, they have been prepared by my father. Right and left of the king in the ancient world, to sit literally to the right and to the left of the king, these were positions of highest honor in a royal throne room. And the right side in particular, I guess to you be right here, the right side in particular was the most prestigious. But to sit at the right of Jesus comes at a cost. That's what he's saying. And as costly as it is, it does lead to life. In fact, you see this at Jesus' crucifixion. If we jump to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 23, it's a scene of Jesus dying on the cross. And you guys know the story. Many of us know the story about the two criminals that were to his left and to his right, right? You know his story. Let's go to that story really quick. Luke 23, Jesus is on the cross. And then the story tells us this. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And then one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished 
justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And then this criminal says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Even at Jesus' crucifixion, this is intentional, by the way. Even at Jesus' crucifixion, there is a man to his right and a man to his left. This is enthronement, kingship imagery. Make no mistake, this is not some random happenstance that on that day there happened to be multiple criminals. No, this is very intentional from the gospel writers and the way God unfolds the story. In other words, Jesus' crucifixion is in fact his enthronement as king. Think deeply on this. Crucifixion is the worst, most horrific, most shameful death a person in the first century world could die. It was reserved for the absolute worst of criminals because it was the most painful death. In fact, the way crucifixion was designed, you would die not from the pain of having nails piercing your body, you would die from asphyxiation. You would die because your arms would lose strength enough to pull yourself up to fill your lungs with air and breathe out. That's how you would die. The reason the Romans designed crucifixion was to shame the criminal in such a way that in essence, the criminal would kill himself. Does this make sense? They're not put to death on a cross with a Roman soldier punishing them to death. They hang there alone and everyone observes as their bodies give out and death comes because of their own inability to breathe. It is the worst of deaths reserved for the absolute scum of society in Jesus' day. So Jesus is crucified, but the scene plays out as an enthronement. Jesus' death as a criminal is his enthronement as king, flanked by a man to the right and to the left. The floor is the sky, and the sky is the floor in God's kingdom. This man that sees Jesus and recognizes that Jesus is hanging here for reasons that are so different than the reason he's hanging there. This man, again, has done unspeakable wrong. You do not get crucified in the Roman world unless you have done unspeakable wrong. This man is not being crucified because he stole a loaf of bread. This man is being crucified very likely because he has killed some people. And yet even this man, the scum of society, in his dying moments, he receives the gift of life. And how does it happen? He does two things. He acknowledges who he's been and what he's done. Right? He says that word. We, listen, we are punished justly. Like even in his own painful death, 
This man says, I deserve this. He acknowledges who he's been and what he's done. And then he recognizes who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. He says, this man, Jesus, he doesn't deserve this. But I think if I ask him, he has enough power and he has enough grace to give me life after this painful death. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man who is the scum of society acknowledges who he's been and what he's done and he recognizes who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. And no matter where you are in your life, no matter what you have done, no matter what has been done to you, no matter how uncomfortable you feel that you are sitting in a church surrounded by what you perceive to be Christians who are happy, shiny people who have it all together and you're like, like squirming in your seat. Why am I here? No one here is like me. Let me just tell you, you are amongst good company. There is not a person in this room who doesn't deserve the painful, just death that our wrongdoing actually deserves in the, in the presence of a holy, sinless, perfect God. And I know that's a harsh thing to say, but my best understanding of Scripture is that that is reality. And yet, there are people in this room who have life and life to the full, both now and on into eternity, not because of what they've done, not because of what I've done, not because we're so deserving or we've got our things together or our life is looking more and more Christian all the time, but because we have acknowledged who we've been what we've done, and we recognize who Jesus is and what he can do. No matter how lost you feel, no matter how far gone you think you are, no matter how beyond rescuing and redemption you may assume to be, if you would simply acknowledge who you've been, what you've done, recognize who Jesus is and what he can do, it is never too late for you. You are never too far gone. You have not done too much for God's grace. You cannot outrun his love that was poured out for you on the cross. Acknowledge who you've been and what you've done. That's about confession. And repentance, don't shy away from it, don't hide it, don't shove it into the dark corner of your heart and mind out of shame or guilt. You've been freed from those things. Confess it to God, repent of it, turn around. That word repentance literally means to turn and to return. And recognize who Jesus is and what he can do. Put your faith in him. Your trust in him. Commit to him. Commit to a life of devotion toward him. Here's the thing. If you feel too weak or insufficient to do this, if you feel like, man, Jay, that sounds great, but I'm exhausted. I don't have the strength for all of that. I'm too beat up. My life is too much of a mess. If that's you, you are in a good place. Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12, Christ said to me, my grace, Jesus' grace, is sufficient for you. For my power, Jesus' power, 
is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, Paul's weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. There's this really interesting misunderstanding in, in um, Christian circles that when we say yes to Jesus, Jesus makes us strong. No, he does not. Jesus does not make you strong. He doesn't make you powerful. Jesus is not like a dietary supplement you take in the morning and you're like, oh my gosh, here we go. Every morning, just six ounces of Jesus and I'm so strong. I can withstand any trial or tribulation or temptation. I am strong. Nowhere in the scripture is that promised to you. You and I are weak. We will always be weak. But remember, the sky is the floor and the floor is the sky in God's kingdom. In your weakness, you are fertile soil, not for your strength, but Jesus' strength to move through you. It is his power that rests on you. It is not power he gives to you. It is his power that comes to rest on you in your weakness. This is why Paul does not say, I delight in my newfound strength. No, he says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, my weakness, because Christ's power then rests on me. This is possible for all of us, not to become strong, but to experience the unfathomable strength of Jesus moving in and through you. But to experience it, like Steve said last Sunday, you have to surrender. And this sort of surrender, as Steve said last Sunday, will require something of you. And that something is everything. Jesus will not give you partial power when you give him parts of your life. He wants it all. Um, this past summer, uh, my wife and I took our kids on this trip, um, just a, a little summer break, and we were at this park um, in, in, on the East Coast. Uh, we were visiting some family there, and it was this like epic park, and there was this like crazy, almost spider web jungle gym type thing, and it was epic. It was huge and awesome. And because we don't live there, we'd never been to this park before, but my kids were like, they see this epic jungle gym, they're like, oh my gosh, it's so awesome. And so they go running up this thing, right? And it's so interesting, because my daughter's eight, my son is five, but my son is like twice as coordinated as my daughter. So my son is just going up and down, jumping off, going nuts, but then my daughter, as kids do, she's just climbing, climbing, climbing. And she gets to the very top of this thing, and I'm sitting on the bench with Jenny, and we're just chatting, kind of watching them in the distance. And then all of a sudden, I hear, Daddy! And I look up, and my daughter is the, at the top of this thing. And this is what kids do, right? She has managed to get to the top, but she cannot figure out a way to get to the bottom. So in her eight-year-old mind, she is thinking to herself, I'm going to have to live up here for the rest of my life. This is my future. How will I ever get down? Except she has a way out. She has a way out, right? It's dad. 
So she screams my name. So I walk calmly and gently over to her. And she's like, Daddy, I need help. I'm scared. I can't get down. So I did what every good father would do. I said, have a wonderful life up there at the top of this jungle gym. I'll bring you food and water, and we'll come visit sometimes. <laughs> no, of course not. What did I do? I was like, okay, I'm trying to figure out a way. I sort of start climbing up, and I realize this is not going to work. It's going to take too long. I got to, like, step by step. So I do, I don't know if this is right, you guys, but I just, I walked under this giant contraption. I stand literally right beneath her. And what do I do? Just let go. And what does she do? She's like, yes, Dad, I trust you so much. No, of course not. She's like, are you nuts? <laughs> like, no way. So then we're having this long back and forth, like, no, I will catch you. Don't worry. And she's like, no, Dad, you're weak. You have small muscles <laughs> or whatever, you know. Like, she's like, you're not going to catch me. She's like, no, honey, I'm going to catch you. It's fine. And we're just going back and forth. Her younger brother at this point is just like, just jump, Harper, you know. And we just have this long back and forth. And then eventually, eventually she lets go. She screams. And I catch her. It wasn't until she let go that she was safe. That's everything. It's everything. You've got to let go. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. And laying down your arms, surrendering, means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means undergoing a kind of death. As we surrender and experience the old is gone, the new is here reality of our lives, our lives begin to actually take on the shape of Christ's life. And in theological circles, there's a word for this. It's the word cruciformity, which essentially means into the shape of the cross. Michael Gorman has a book called Cruciformity. It's, um, it's an academic book, but it's the best book I've ever read about leaning into and living a cross-shaped life, if anyone's interested. He says this in the book. The believer's faith is cruciform faith because Christ's faithfulness was expressed on the cross. To experience resurrection, you must die. Now, for most of us, this will not mean a literal death. It did for the early Christians for the first two, three hundred years of the um, Christian church. It will not mean that for most of us. So what does it mean? What sort of death are we talking about? What does a cruciform life look like? What does it look like to let go and to plunge ourselves into the safety of Christ, knowing that that descent is a descent into the death of our old lives, into resurrection in Jesus, the new life? What does that look like? What does cruciformity look like in our day and age? Jesus actually tells us. Jesus called them together and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Remember, the floor is the sky. The sky is the floor. Just as, and here's the key, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And what we talked about earlier, to give his life as a ransom, a payment for many. 
to live a cruciform life, to experience death to your old self, in order to experience resurrection and new life in Jesus, there are many things, but one of the most practical things, this is gonna seem too simple, but it's not, because it is simple, but it's so hard to do. One of the simplest, most challenging things you can do to die to your old self, to experience new life in Jesus, is to serve, is to stop seeking to be served, and instead, to serve. So a couple of invitations before we conclude our teaching today. First, next Sunday, you all know this already. I'm wearing the shirt. Um, next Sunday, don't show up here because no one will be here. Next Sunday, um, we are hoping about 1,500 of us will be all over, not just next Sunday, next Saturday and Sunday, next weekend, um, that we are going to be all over our city, beautifying our city, with God for the good of our city as an expression of God's call on our lives to love our neighbors through beautiful day. So I think there's about 1,300 of us signed up already. If you have not signed up yet, there are four different shifts, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon. I think there's like 20 projects all over our city. There's projects um, that are available for even like kids as young as six or seven, something like that. If you have not signed up for Beautiful Day, there's still time. Go to our website and sign up or scan that QR code and join us next weekend. It's a way in which we will physically embody the cruciform life by serving instead of seeking to be served. And we are serving not because we have it all together and our city is a mess and they need our rescue. No, we are serving because Jesus served and we wanna become like him. Um, also, I would tell you, and our team asked me to specifically say this, if you are signed up for Beautiful Day, please come. Like every year there are people who are like, eh, and I get it, you get COVID, you get sick or something happens, I get it. But please, please do not do the, oh, I think they have like 1,500 people, they're good to go, I'm kind of tired, you know, it's like I'm gonna watch some football or whatever. No, if you sign up, Honor your commitment and serve. And it's not because like we need every person there, although that would be very helpful. It's because you're missing out. If you've served at Beautiful Day, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It changes you. It changes us as a people. The, my other invitation is this. Um, and maybe you can do both this week. Maybe you can only do one. My other invitation is serve one person this week. And if you do Beautiful Day, you'll be doing this naturally. But if you're not a part of Beautiful Day, serve one person this week with intentionality, forethought, and care in a way that costs you. Think about one person in your life that you can serve with intentionality, forethought, and care in a way that costs you. Not because primarily they need it, but because you need it. Because I need it. I'm going to invite Mark and the team to come back up. And uh, we're going to sing and respond here together. I'll show you an image here. Um, this is uh, the Lahaina banyan tree. You guys know the story, obviously. Um, our uh, compassion team, we were able to send a significant sum of money when the fires in Lahaina um, ripped that city apart. This is a photo of uh, a really famous banyan tree in Lahaina that um, has been standing for 150 years. It's obviously a photo that was taken before the fires. 
It's an Indian ficus tree that stands 60 feet tall, and this is how big it is. Its shade um, covers nearly two-thirds of an acre. And 150 years ago, it was given as a gift from India specifically to commemorate the first Christian missionaries in Lahaina. And the tree was severely damaged in the fires. I mean, almost burnt down in early August. But some of you have read the news stories. By mid-September, I'll show you the next photo, this resilient tree started showing signs of life. Um, The landscape contractor who's overseeing the restoration of the tree, a man named Chris Amonti, he said this. I don't know if Chris is a Christian, but listen to these words. He said, to me, it's a symbol of hope. We don't know what's down the line, but I think it's going to be a new beginning for everybody. What feels scorched in your life? What feels scorched in our city and in our world or maybe in your neighborhood? New life is possible. Peace and joy and meaning are possible no matter what you've done or what you've been through. But it will come by way of um, sacrifice and laying down your life. It will come by way of the cross. It will come by way of death. Death to self, giving way to a life of service in Jesus' name. That's why over a thousand of us next weekend are going to be serving. It's a way, a small way, in which we put to death our old self-centered selves and lean into the new life of joy, meaning, peace, purpose, a life of service that Jesus calls us to. Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The floor is the sky and the sky is the floor. You You want to experience life and life to the full? Die to yourself. Let go of the bars and plunge into death and find the safety and the restoration of resurrection life in the loving arms of Jesus who will never, ever let you go. Amen? Let's stand and sing together.